Uh, my name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors of Reach Montreal. Whoa, look at this. We had to put more chairs out. It's weird like being up here with my like bald head to all of you and not being able to see what's going on. But um, that's, that's amazing. It's so glad, I'm so glad that we can be together as Reach Montreal and Church 21 and have moments like this. Um, if you hear something in my voice, it's not COVID. It's a sinus infection. So just pray for me. Um, don't worry. Have no, have no fear. Okay. Um, so here's what we're doing. We're back into the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark 13, which is about the end times. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Exciting. We're going to have some fun. Now, here's the thing. Um, it's not actually about the end times. It's a text that's often used to talk about the end times. But these verses actually do something far more important and far more significant for us, regardless of the age that we're in. This is for, like, this is, this is hope. This is encouragement for believe, believers at all times. Uh, yes, 2,000 years ago, but yes for you and me today. So it's really important that we know that because it is a very important text with very important real wor world applications for us today. So my hope, my prayer, is that we're able to walk out of here with that in mind. Not kind of thinking about like how much baby blood is Mark Zuckerberg drinking and what is COVID and, and what's going on at Pizzagate. And like let's, let's just like pull back a little bit because we have so many things to kind of like deconstruct from before we actually understand what Jesus was talking about when he even pointed forward to the future. All right, so you're with me on that? Good, all right. So to catch us up, uh, Mark writes his gospel biography to do one thing. And he does it again here. He does one thing throughout his gospel biography. He wants to show us who Jesus is. That's what he wants to do. He wants everyone who is able to experience the message of his gospel to have a very raw, kind of in the raw, real picture of who Jesus is. Not just like religious truths or helpful moral principles for life, but who is Jesus what did he say about himself, and why does it change everything for everyone everywhere if we actually understand it? That's why Mark writes, okay? So all throughout the gospel, we see evidence of people being very confused about Jesus. Like they're very confused, they're perplexed, they're angry, they're offended. There's all sorts of very interesting reactions to Jesus throughout the gospel. But here's the point and why we need to understand that. If you actually take Jesus' claims and understand who he says he is and understand the seriousness and gravity of what he teaches, no one can just kind of shrug at Jesus. You can't just kind of go like, oh, that's, that's cute. That's, that's interesting. Right? Everything's so interesting nowadays, right? It's just like, oh, Jesus is interesting. No, he's not. He's far more than just interesting. Like if he is who he says he is, it is far more. The implications are far greater than just being interesting. Amen? But if he isn't who he says he is, then we, all of us who are followers of Jesus, we got to just take our ball and go home. Amen? So it's like there's a lot riding on who Jesus is. There's a lot riding on what he said. So I want that to be our invitation again today. I don't care if you've been following Jesus for decades or you know more Bible verses than you should. Right, we need to walk out of here with a clearer view of Jesus this morning, amen? And that's what we're about, not just Reach Montreal, not just Church 21, but that's what the church across the city of Montreal needs to be about. A banner with his name on it, a banner for his fame and glory, because that's the only thing that is going to last the test of time, amen? Cool, I'm excited. Are you excited? Yeah, good, all right, that's good. So here's our invitation, I want to ask two questions before we jump into the text. The first question is a personal one. First question is personal. When you think about the end, what emotions immediately come kind of to the surface for you? Whether it's the end of like the space-time continuum or if it's just the end of your own life. When you're just kind of brought and, and sober-mindedly brought to the reality that your life and mine will come to an end, what are you filled with? What emotions do you experience as you think about that? Is it fear? Is it confusion? Is it hope? Is it worry? Is it just nihilism? Just meh, meh. Well, what are you filled with immediately when you think about your end or the end? That's the first question. The second question is kind of a historical and textual question that will help us with this text, these verses in particular. As we read, here's the questions we need to consider. Where is Jesus? 
who is he talking to, and what is he actually talking about. Now, around Reach Montreal, we like to talk about not reading the Bible literally, because that's a weird thing to say, unless you know Koine Greek. Any Greek scholars up in here? Yeah, okay, that's good. Okay, but, but there, no, none of us are reading this literally. What we like to say at Reach is that we lead it, read it literarily, that we actually deal with it as a text in its own context and in its own cultural context, and then we move to like practical application of what does this actually mean for me? Because this is where I think the end time stuff really comes from. As long as you have a microphone and a camera, you can get on YouTube and become a prophet of the end times, right? And you can use verses like this and just like pluck them out of their context and be like, abomination of desolation. Mm. Come watch my new episode. Give it a thumbs up and hit the bell button for more, right? Like, so like, what? So we got to be careful to actually read things in their proper context. So let's pay attention to what Jesus is actually saying, who he's saying it to. And where he is when he says it. That is going to help us a ton with these verses. All right, you ready? The sermon might be three hours long. All right, so let's go. Chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. We'll start there. So as Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones. Like, this is so beautiful. Somebody obviously has, like, an appreciation for architecture and art, right? So he's pointing at the temple going, like, whoa, look at this. This is amazing. What massive stones make up this temple? What impressive buildings. Jesus is like, hmm, do you see these great buildings? It's like, well, yeah, I, I do because I just told you how great they are, right? Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. Because he heard that. They heard that and they're like, what? Like, it's the temple, man. Like, what do you mean? Like, how is that going to, like, we need the temple. Like, that's where we meet God. Like, we need a place to be religious. That, we need that place, right? They're like, so what are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? Tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. All right, so what's going on here? Well, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is across from the temple. You can go there today and kind of see where the temple was, the temple mount. And you can sit, so they're about 300 feet above the temple. And they're looking down across the landscape. It's beautiful, just across Jerusalem. And they're sitting there, and Jesus is talking to his disciples about the destruction of that beautiful temple. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the fig tree. Remember Jesus' teaching on the fig tree? You're like, what? What was he doing? Well, the fig tree was used to stress that the temple would be demolished and be just deemed irrelevant to that generation, right in the same time that Jesus is talking. And if you remember over the last few chapters, Jesus is actually confronting, not just the, uh, like revealing not just the destruction of the temple, but he's confronting the temple worship and the religious system. Like he's calling bluff on the religious system of the time and saying, this isn't going to cut it. Your prayers, your worships, your sacrifices, your offerings, coming to this place and doing like your thing is not going to cut it. And you've perverted it. It's not righteous anymore. It's not doing what I meant for it to do, so I'm going to tear it down. That's what he's saying. It's very, very bold. That's why he uses the fig tree to say it's withered. The original purpose of the temple, it's withered. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And then last week, if you remember, he moves on from the temple. And who does he rebuke? Who does he challenge? The religious leaders themselves. He calls them out for power dressing and, and being after clout and platforms and money and trying to use God's name for their own selfish prosperity. There's a lot of that around. And he calls them out for that and says, you're not of me. You're not even obeying the law. You're not obeying the weightier matters of the law. Because you don't love others and you don't love God and you don't love your neighbor because you love yourself. And he calls out the religious authorities for that. And he rebukes them for ignoring what God's heart actually bleeds for. The orphans and the widows and the marginalized and justice. Well, they're over in their temple doing their thing. Jesus is like, I don't even have anything to do with that. Very bold teaching last week. And then here... He's following through on that. And Jesus leaves the temple for the last time. God himself, in flesh, leaves the temple never to come back. It's like his big exit. Where he just kind of throws up like deuces. He's like, I'm out of here and I'm never coming back. 
that's a big deal. And then he says, I'm even going to tear the temple down. Now, the disciples aren't wrong. The temple's pretty amazing. You can go and see kind of pictures of it. You can go visit today, but the stones are not standing on each other anymore. But it was beautiful. It was huge. The temple was one of the wonders of the world in the ancient world. Um, It was 35 football fields in area. Like, just take 35 football fields and put them together. Like, this thing was massive. This wasn't just like this, right? Like, this thing was huge. 165 feet high walls. And then the exterior of the walls were covered in gold plates. Uh, The historian Josephus uh, called it like a snow-capped mountain because when the sun would rise and it would hit the gold plates, it would be so blinding from miles away. Crazy. Like, this thing is legit. And more significantly significantly than just it being like super awesome, it was actually the heart of Jewish religious life and worship. It was where they had access to God. It's where God made his presence known. And that's why it's so significant that Jesus here is leaving never to come back, never to return to the temple. And he's saying, I'm going to tear it down and destroy it. So you got to sit with that. I know that doesn't hit us like as deeply as it, as it did, his original audience. But that, that, that would hit them so hard. Because it was like, well, then where's our hope? Because like, we put our hope in this, this system, these offerings, these prayers, this place. Like I thought that this was how we worship God. And Jesus is tearing it all down. Why? Because he's replacing it with the only thing that all those things were meant to point to in the first place. So he says he himself is the temple. He shows up and he says, no, no, you don't have to work with your flesh to get to God. I am God, come to, come, come to flesh. You don't need to come to a place. I am the God of all the cosmos, right? So he just kind of takes everything and blows it right up. Now, here's what's interesting. Historical hindsight is helpful for us here because the temple was destroyed. In 66 to about 70 AD, there was a crazy sacking of Jerusalem where it was sieged by the Roman emperor Titus. Some of you historian buffs, you can go and look, look it up and, and check out what happened there. But hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered and they burnt the temple to the ground. Jesus is saying this about 30 years before that happened. 30 or 40 years before that happened. So Jesus is prophesying about something in the future, but it's the immediate future of his disciples. And that's why it's really important we have to understand the context. The disciples are like, when is this going to happen? Like, what, when is the destruction of the temple going to happen? And Jesus is like, let me tell you some things. Because you got to pay attention. you got to stay awake. you got to understand what's happening here. So the immediate future is what's in mind. Historical hindsight is helpful because we can look back and be like, wow, that actually happened. The temple is no more. And this is why the disciples asked Jesus, when will these things happen? And that sets us up for everything else we're going to see, okay? We're not going to read the whole chapter because it would take us a really long time to unpack. This is like a sermon series in and of itself, right? But this is why the disciples ask, like, when will this happen? Because it sets us up for everything Jesus is going to say to his disciples. Now, uh, if you like nerdy stuff, this is called the Olivet Discourse. Okay, it's in a couple of the different gospels. It's called the Olivet Discourse. Say Olivet Discourse. You can go and repeat that and sound super smart. Okay, you're welcome. But it's called the Olivet Discourse. This is also in Matthew, verses, uh, chapters 24 and 25. Here's what's interesting, though. Mark, we know, was writing before the destruction of the temple. But we also know that Matthew is writing after it. So Mark is writing his gospel down before the destruction of the temple, saying, here's what Jesus said. But Matthew is writing after the destruction of the temple, trying to make sense of things looking backwards. So we got to be careful when we read these two gospel accounts and not start like conflating them together and being like, yes, my end times views. Right? And say, like, no, no, but, but both gospel writers are doing something very different. So we don't have time to treat Matthew's gospel. We're going to just look at Mark's. But that's an important thing because what Mark is doing is he's highlighting what Jesus did. Jesus is saying, I'm about to do something that is going to change everything. And I'm going to show you not just the immediate impact of that, but also the future. Okay? With me so far? Some of us. Good. All the end times people are like, get to the end times part. (laughs) I'm probably going to disappoint you. Just warning. Okay? Welcome to Reach Montreal. Okay, so watch, verse 5 through 10. Here's what Jesus says. So Jesus told them to answer their question. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place. 
but is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are just the beginning of the birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you, talking to his disciples, okay, so again, this is not for us. Okay, it is for us, but it's not primarily for us. Pay attention. They will hand you over to local courts. You will be flogged, beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. Okay, pause. What happens in the book of Acts? All of that. Okay? So this is literally just, you lay that out. Now go read the book of Acts and you're like, oh, all of that. Okay? So really important. Immediate, present context. Skip down to verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation, now it's getting spicy, baby. Standing where it should not stand, let the reader understand. I love when Jesus, like, Mark's just like, pay attention. Don't do crazy things with this. Okay? He's warning us, don't go on YouTube. Okay? Then, <laughs> those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Are, you got, are, are we in Judea? Anyone? No. Okay, so don't, don't do it. Don't do that. Okay? We're not there. It's not for us. Must flee to the mountains. A man on housetop must not come down or go in to get anything from his house. And a man in the field must not even go back to get his coat. So when they were working on the field, they'd have like a work cloak and then like a social life cloak. And they're like, leave in your work cloak. When you see this happen, don't even go back in for your like social cloak, okay? You're just leaving your Jedi cloak, okay, is what he's saying here. Woe to the pregnant woman and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that it won't happen in winter. Okay, why is that significant? Well, any women who have been pregnant, running for your lives is not the thing you want to do while you're pregnant. Okay? And it happening in winter, what would happen in the winter is that the Jordan River would actually flood. And it would make travel really hard because basically a lot of the desert would just turn into a marsh. And so you couldn't use chariot. You couldn't use any of that stuff. So that's why the winter thing. Winter, we're just like a lot of snow. And you're like, no, no, the desert, okay? But what happened is the Jordan would actually overflow in the winter. That's what happens seasonally there. So it's saying like, you better hope this doesn't happen in the winter because it's going to be really hard to get the heck out of there and escape with your lives. Okay, that's what's happening. Skip down to 21. Then, if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah. Our Savior has arrived. Do not believe it. For false messiahs and teachers and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. All right, pause there. Oh, yeah. This is getting fun. Hear me. Next to Genesis and Revelation, these verses are some of the most abused verses in the Bible. They're, they're some of the most cherry-picked verses in the Bible. That we just pluck them right out, we ignore all things about the cultural and historical context, and we make them say things that they never said. So we've got to be really, really careful. We've got to be responsible with the Word of God. Amen? Like responsible interpreters of God's Word. Not just kind of like, oh, cool, YouTube, right? Like, it's like, no, no, look, we actually have to sit. We actually have to trust that there is something happening here. We have to go through the necessary steps of interpretation. But before we start just throwing stuff out of here. Now, listen, I understand why these verses have been taken out of context so much. Because there's a lot of buzzwords in there, right? Tribulation, abomination, and desolation, and the elect, and false prophets, and signs and wonders, and rumors of wars and wars. And you're just like, bing, 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 bing. Like my conspiracy mind is just like, yeah, Right? <laughs> so, so I understand it. I understand the impulse, the knee-jerk reaction that we have to these texts. But listen, as much as I appreciate Nicolas Cage, and he is a national treasure, and the best actor of our generation, <laughs> Left Behind is a work of fiction, not a work of biblical exposition. And I'm not telling you to go home and burn your books or not watch the movie. Actually, I'm telling you not to watch the movie because it's awful. But it is a work of fiction. Not a work of biblical exposition. Now, I don't have like a lot of church baggage because I didn't grow up in the church per se, but Left Behind was like in pop culture too. And I was just like, that's what Christians think? So like I'd see like bumper stickers of like in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. And I'm like, ooh, ugh. Oh. And then I just had like images of just like piles of clothes and like naked people just floating. I'm just kind of like, Jesus is coming back for all of us naked people. I heard of kids having nightmares of like <laughs> being left behind in the middle of the night and then they're going and seeing mommy and daddy, you're, they're gone, right? Like, so I say, what? 
So we've done weird things with eschatology. That's the fancy word for the end. The eschaton, the end times. Now, as much as that makes for, like, entertaining sci-fi, kind of. <laughs> I mean, not, I didn't say good sci-fi. I said entertaining sci-fi. It's not actually what the Bible teaches about the future at all. So, so let me be really clear. These verses right here are not about the end of the world. They're not about the end of the space-time continuum. They are not about the obliteration of planet Earth and us floating naked into the cosmos beyond. It's just not, okay? Jesus' teaching here is for his disciples about the end of their world as they know it. It's about the end of their world as they know it. Everything that's familiar to them, he's saying that is all going to pass away. And I'm showing you what to do with that. I'm showing you how to pay attention with that. Now, is there an application beyond his disciples in that context to the future? Of course there is. Absolutely. But we have to do the hard work of figuring out what the text actually said before we try to make it say things. Are you tracking? You with me on that? Okay. So, even if it was about the future. All right, let me just like appease you a bit. Okay. Even if it was about the future, all right? Even if it was about the end, even if it was about like the proper and final time that we're going to be on planet earth, Jesus' vision of the future is not a demolition of the cosmos, it's the renewal and restoration of it. And so we got to be careful with escapism, because we're like, oh, this thing's blowing up, baby. As long as, as soon as the sun wears down or blows up, we're out of here, right? That's, that's not this. That's not what we see biblically at all. We actually see a future vision of new heaven, new earth, everything being restored. Not blowing up, but, but restored and renewed. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, new life. All brokenness, all death, all shame, all guilt, all pain. All wrongs will be righted. Everything will be just justice. Everything will be justice. So that is future, absolutely. And there is hope for us in that with our current situations and suffering and pain, absolutely. But we got to be careful here because what Jesus is doing is he is prophesying about immediate historical events and nodding to something in the future to give us timeless principles. All right, good? The table's set? Good. So here's what Jesus is doing with this text. He is warning us. Okay? And you're like, yes, this is the beefy part, right? He's warning us. If you notice, he laces a very strong warning all throughout the verses. Did you catch that? repeatedly. He's like, watch out, pay attention, wake up, be alert, be on standby, don't be asleep, right? So the whole time he's going through and he's warning them, don't be deceived, don't be distracted, stay awake, stay ready. Now I grew up in a martial arts, a, a combat family, we all have black belts and different stuff and can fight people, that's cool. But, but in, in, in fighting, like if, you don't, if you're not ready, I mean you're getting punched in the face, right? Like, so like if you're in a fight, you're not, you're not just like this, Right, like, 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 like you're you're ready. You're like, okay, like I'm I'm ready, right? There's there's, there's a readiness to it. Jesus is like, are you are you are you postured like that about your life? Are you postured in the present about the fact that the end can come and will come? That your end will come. My end will come. The end will come. And then he warns in three different things, and he says these three things don't signal the end. Okay, this is what's weird. We use these verse to signal the end, and Jesus is like. So, so like false teachers and messiahs, wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters, they don't signal the end. So don't pay attention to those. Those are normal. Those are going to happen. It's, it's the groaning of the earth. The planet is begging and crying out for restoration. That's what's happening here. Those are normal. So, so don't freak out. Don't be outraged. Don't panic. That's what he's telling them, right? Now that's interesting because we usually take those verses and we're like, Wars and rumors of wars. Gog and Magog. Russia and Ukraine. And you're like, nope, not at all. Not what's happening here. Not, not what those te this text is doing. False teachers and messiahs, they're everywhere. I don't know if you, like, internet. Go on the interwebs, they're everywhere. Somebody knows something about the end times, and they want you to like and subscribe and tell you about it. And Jesus is like, yeah, but you don't. Like, that, that's not this, right? And you're like, no, but I do, because I, I, like, I had a conversation this week, and they're like, yeah, so I, I saw a video of a guy who died for, like, an hour and a half, and I'm like, mm-hmm. And, like, he went, like, to heaven or, like, to beyond to, like, the great 
womb, cosmic womb. And he came back and told us what it was like. And I'm like, oh, cool, tell me, right? So then I engaged in this, like, way longer conversation than I should have <laughs> about this topic. And it's like, no, he knows when the end's happening, he told us, so get ready. And I'm like, I'm, I've been ready, right? Like, I've, I've, I didn't need that guy to go to the cosmic womb to come back and tell me stuff because his DMT hit him a bit hard, right? If you don't know what DMT is, don't Google it, it's all good. But even at that time, there was tons of, like, guerrilla military warfare stuff happening. There was false messiahs coming, saying, like, hey, I'm going to save you. Come to me. Campaigning, you know, politicians showing up, be like, I am the messiah. Come with me. I am the great white hope. I am the great whatever, Roman hope. I am the great Jewish hope, whatever it is. Jesus is like, don't. Do not put your hope in those things. Do not look to those things. But when the abomination of desolation, you're like, okay. Now, that sounds like a metalcore band, right? Abomination of desolation. <laughs> but, it, but it's not. I'm sorry, we gotta, we gotta go. All right, let's go. Um, it's a hyperlink to the Old Testament in the book of what? Tell me. Daniel. Okay, so he's pointing back to Daniel, and he's saying, Daniel told us about this, and this actually happened. So in the year 176 BC, a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes IV, strong name. If you're looking, if you have babies, you're looking for a strong name, that's a good one. Antiochus Epiphanes. And in 176, he showed up in Jerusalem and he sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. And Daniel prophesied that. He's like, this is going to go down. Here's what it's going to look like. So what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, he's taking a pretty fresh historical memory for them. And he's like, you remember when that happened? Something similar is going to happen. And when that happens, don't stay and fight. Get out of here. He's warning them. He's like, get out of here. Get out of Jerusalem. Go to Judea. Get out of here when you see that thing happen. There will be some kind of a sacrilegious act in the temple. When you see that happen, don't get your cloak. Don't go in and grab food. Get out of here. That's what, that's what he's telling them. Now, we do know we have a couple historical references of what that may have been. When the temple was brought down, we do know that Titus, who led that, that siege of Jerusalem, he oversaw a pagan sacrifice on the Temple Mount. May have been that. But also there's another thing that happened just before that in the year 68, where a bunch of zealots, there was like a zealous movement. We don't have any zealots around today, don't worry about it. But there was a zealous movement where they appointed an unqualified and uncalled priest to go in and do all sorts of random nonsense and pagan sacrifices in the temple. Regardless of where you land and, and which one you like better, it's one of those things. And Jesus was saying, when you see this happen, get out of here. Don't stay. Don't stay and fight. There's a time to flee. There's a time to stay. And that is the time to flee, so go. Okay? So that's the context. That's what Jesus is saying. Now watch what he stresses as he closes this teaching. Verse 32 through 37, watch. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Now he's pointing forward, okay? Now he's pointing to kind of cosmic realities. He's given them the context for their life, and now he's pointing forward. No one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time or your time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, and gave each one his job, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes, suddenly he might find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to everyone. See how he switched? It's to everyone now. Wake up. Be alert. You don't know what the future holds. It's like, yeah, but I saw a video on YouTube. No, you didn't though, right? Also, okay? They don't know also, right? You don't know what the future holds. I know, like our suburban life of like, oh, look how great, like, look at this. I can control only so much. You have no idea what the future holds, your future or the future. But hear me, Jesus is way more concerned with shaping how you and I think and live now than what you and I know about the future. That's his point here. And seven times he's like, wake up. Seven times he's like, look out. Seven times he's like, watch out. Because you don't know. So be ready. Are you ready? That's what he's asking. That's for all of us. That's not just for his disciples. That's for all of us. Are you ready? 
Some of us are asleep. Some of us are paralyzed. Some of us are walking around like the walking dead, just half dead, waiting to lay down forever. Some of us are living, but we're not alive. And that's what he's calling out. Here's what this asks of us. Here's what this asks of you and me. Are you ready for your end? Are you living in such a way that you're ready to give an account for the life that you have been given? Now that's heavy, right? I don't know what that does to you, what emotions that brings to the surface, but that's a question we must reckon with. Are you ready? Are you striving to be faithful? Are you striving, not perfectly, but, but just stumbling towards Jesus? As a follower of Jesus, are you just stumbling towards him? Fighting to maximize what he's given you. Maximize your time. Stop wasting it. Maximizing the talents and the gifts and the treasure that he's given you. Not just sitting on it for you. That's what he's asking. To you as a follower of Jesus. That's who he's talking to. Now if you're not a follower of Jesus, this also asks questions of you. Hear me clearly, this may be the last time that you hear the gospel. This may be the last time that you have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. You know why? Because you don't know. You have now. You have today. You have this present moment to hear about the grace of God, to hear Navnita come and share what God has done in her life, to come and hear who Jesus truly is, to come and worship among a bunch of us who don't just believe religious ideas, but actually follow a risen, life-giving Savior. Amen? Like, like, that's for you. This may be the last time that you have an opportunity to turn from independence from God to dependence upon him. This might be your last time. And the good news is that the end is not yet. <laughs> the, the good news is that you can wake up. The, the good news that we, is that we can heed Jesus' warning here. And that God wants to revive us. God wants to wake us up. God wants to give us life. Life so full that death can't stop it. That's what he's getting at here. So two things, okay? Let's apply it two things or else this sermon is going very long, all right? Number one, every time Jesus speaks of the future, it's for the benefit of the present. Every time Jesus speaks about the future, it's for the benefit of the present. I know we don't want to do that because we love like sensationalism and speculation and all sorts of like I have hidden knowledge because I went to the cosmic womb. And you're like, Probably, probably didn't, right? When he speaks about the future, it's always to, in the present, push into us. The point that Jesus is making here, he's not setting an agenda for the future. He's calling for obedience now. It's amazing because he's always pointing his disciples away from speculation. Always. He's like, hey, false teachers will come. They'll tell you all sorts of stuff that they think they know. They're wrong. Listen to me. It's like, mm, maybe, right? It's like, no, no, don't, don't listen to them. There's all sorts of speculation. And he pulls them right back to present obedience. And he asks, how are you going to live? Because I do feel like it's a deflection. I feel like often it's, it's a deflection. Whether it's like we're pointing at present ills in society so that we don't have to have the arrows pointed inwards. Or we continually point to the future, future, future so that we don't have to reckon with how we're managing our life now. So Jesus is always lovingly, patiently drawing us back to the present. Just saying, no, no, obedience now. The future will worry about itself. You don't know. So, so what are you doing now? And he's pulling us back. Uh, in Matthew's version of this teaching, he says, see that you're not troubled. Man, if I'm honest, if there's one thing the church is in our Western context, it's troubled. <laughs> there's one thing that we're that, that characterizes us in the West is that we're troubled about the future. All sorts of fears. It's like, well, what if they get elected? And what if this happens? And what if this happens to my crypto portfolio? And what if, this, right? And you're just like, what? Like, so what happens if we end up living in this, like, weird what ifs instead of what is? And then we waste and squander what is, right? So, so Jesus is like, no, no, don't. Don't live in what ifs. Let's come back to what is. What today, the breath in your lungs, the opportunities you have, the people in your lives, the family members you get to love. What are you doing with that now? The Great Commission, now. Go, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey me. 
The great commandment, go and love God and love neighbor. The great requirement, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Are we doing that now? Or is that suffering because we're thinking too much about the future? The other thing Jesus points out here is that the Christian view of the future, when it's biblical, I'll just like footnote that, not Nick Cage, okay, but like when it's biblical, the Christian view of the future should fuel engagement, not escapism. Any theology that comes around and tells you that the whole point of this thing is self-preservation and, and hunkering down and getting canned beans and surviving until we get raptured out of here naked, it's not in the Bible. It's just not. Like the whole point of Jesus talking about the future is to fuel engagement now, present obedience now in the moment that we have. Listen, culture will give you all sorts of ways to escape. Drugs, alcohol, sex, overworking, more square footage, greener grass, whatever it is. Culture gives us lots of options to, be, to just escape and be distracted. That is not supposed to be the case for Jesus' people. That is not the kingdom ethic at all about the future or the present. We're supposed to be in every moment preaching the unchanging gospel to this ever-changing culture. That's what we're called to. So if your view of the end, if your view of the future paralyzes you and gives you fear and, and, and makes you less active in the present, it's a lie. It's wrong. It's not in line with reality. It's not in line with the truth of the word of God. It's just not. So maybe some of us need to like leave here and spend some time like reflecting on that today. It should fuel engagement. It should fuel more prayer, not less. It should fuel more acts of justice, not less. It should fuel more generosity, not less. Not just stockpiling everything that we have. We don't have time, but Jesus has a parable about that exact same thing. He comes back and he's just like, what? You did what with what, what I gave you? You buried it? And then he cast them out into utter darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're like, that doesn't sound good. It's like, no, it probably isn't. That's the first thing. Jesus speaks of the future is for the benefit of the present. Second thing, Jesus speaks of the future to give us hope in times of fear and pain and suffering. We're going to spend a few more minutes on this one because I think this one's very important. I think what's true about the human condition is that we can endure almost anything when we know it's temporary. You with me on that? Like if, you, if you're like being tortured and you know there's like a shelf life on the torture, you're like, okay, I just got to get through how much torture, right? But if you're like being waterboarded, underground somewhere and you have no idea how long it's going to last, hopelessness. Like you're just done, right? Like the nihilism and hopelessness is the only logical thing to have in that moment. But we can endure almost anything if we know there's a shelf life on it. And especially if we know that it will lead to a better future. Especially if we know that it will actually be answered for and it will lead us to a better circumstance in the future. Now if you haven't sat, because it's not something we do, you don't sit in like reflect, I don't know, week to week, maybe some of you guys do, but like sit and just like sit, sit and think about your own mortality all week. You're like, hmm, right? Like, or your own fragility. You're like, what if I don't have tomorrow? Hmm, so good to my soul, right? That's not usually kind of like what we do day to day when we're thinking about it. Some of us are making plans for decades from now. That's wise, that's a good thing. But in pencil, because we don't know how much time we have, right? So right here, it's just like the end or our end our own fragility, our own mortality actually starts to point to where our true hope is if you pay attention to it. So I'm not saying become like morbid and just like make this your daily reflection, but I do think it should change our daily posture. That we do not know how much time we have. And then it starts to unravel and reveal to us where our true hope actually is. Now it's universal. I mean, psychologists say obviously the number one fear of human beings is death. And it makes sense. Of course it is. Whether it's our death or our loved one's death. So what do we do? Well, most of us just stay distracted. We just cope. We have coping mechanisms. We stay distracted and we entertain ourselves to death. And we live, the, live and we work hard now so that we can live the dream and drink Mai Tais on the beach and get leathery and then die. It's like, what? Like, that's, that's, that's the end? So I just want to die as tanned and leathery as possible. Okay, cool. But we entertain ourselves to death. We stay distracted. We live for the moment. But in our still, quiet, 
sober moments, our hopes and our fears are exposed. They become loud. It's important to pay attention to them. Author Brian Greene, not a Christian at all, any stretch of the imagination, wrote a book called the End, Until the End of Time. He says this, if the immediate demise of humanity would render life meaningless, then the same should be true even if the end is far off. Like, that's a, that's a pretty brilliant reflection, right? Like, like, like if, if, things, if things are ending, like, now, or it's ending in however many years from now or thousands of years from now, this is an amazing and profound comment on the secular narrative of our Western culture. Like, if there's nothing before or beyond the material world, if human civilization itself will eventually disappear without a trace, all meaning, beauty, pleasure, while good, is only temporary. You with me on that? It's only temporary. And ultimately, meaningless in the scope of eternity. That, that's what the secular narrative gives us. So when we're intellectually honest about this, and usually we're not, but when we're intellectually honest about this, everything you accomplish here and now, everything that you accomplish in your life, the money you make, the people you impact, the good that you do or the bad that you do, all work towards a future good only has temporary meaning without a secure purpose and end. So if we are just highly evolved animals with time and chance on our side, with no transcendent purpose, meaning, value, or dignity, no identity or morality or destiny, then our world and existence is random. It is deterministic. It is amoral. We're coming from nowhere for no reason, and we're going nowhere for no reason with no present or future hope. That's what our secular narrative gives us. Thanks be to God that the gospel gives us true hope. Because I think we should just lay down if that's all that we have. Nihilism is the intellectually honest end for the secular narrative. It is. We're just not as honest as we think we are. C.S. Lewis wrote an article. It got really popular, actually, over COVID. But in 1948, he wrote an article called On Living in an Atomic Age. So I don't know if you remember. Like, the atomic bomb was a big deal. And they were like, oh, like, the big red button could get pressed and the earth will be obliterated. And C.S. Lewis, reflecting on that, listen to what he says. What were your views about the ultimate future of civilization before the atomic bomb? So insert before COVID, before whatever, whatever you want. What were your views about the ultimate future before that? What did you think all this effort of humanity was to come to in the end? Well, the whole story is going to end in nothing. If nature is all that exists, that is, if there is no God, then to then all of human civilization will eventually die with the death of the sun, and so humanity will turn out to have been an accidental flicker, and there will be no one even to remember it. Now, C.S. Lewis doesn't believe that, because at that point he had already come to know Jesus, but he's reflecting on his own secular worldview that he once held. And he's saying, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't work. And he's saying, thank God that we actually have reality put in front of us. That we actually have true hope, that we have truth, that we have something that we can hold on to. Because in the secular narrative, we shrug our shoulders at death and we're like, no, it's a part of life. It's just the cycle of nature. When in reality, death is the most unnatural thing to happen to life. It's a big delete button on everything that gives us life, right? But Jesus shows up and says, there is a God who has promised to guide history, not simply to an end but to its guaranteed inevitable restoration. That's amazing. That's amazingly good news. That we're not moving just to an end, to things just ending. We're moving to a new beginning. That we're actually moving towards the restoration. Jesus shows up and he says that it's my death on behalf of sinners. It's the freedom that I offer for the forgiveness of sins. It's the freedom from the penalty and power of death that can and does give us true hope now and forever. That is radically different than some of the other, again, false teachings. Ideas that don't correspond with reality. Ideas that don't align with the truth that we hear. Now some of us are feeling the pain of this because it hasn't been a great couple years, amen? Some of us are really feeling and sitting with the pain that we've experienced over the last couple years. The loss, the confusion, the anger. There's so much to be angry about over the last couple of years. And if you weren't, you probably just 
coped with it and buried it and used whatever coping mechanism you could and entertained yourselves to death to like just look over here, look over here, right? But it hasn't been a great couple years. C.S. Lewis said that pain insists on being attended to. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, that's true. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So rather than lean away from this reality, rather than, rather than lean away from our own fragility, rather than lean away from some of the things that we've really felt over the last couple years and wrestled with, to lean in and understand that pain actually gives us an opportunity to reevaluate our own priorities, to reevaluate what we're actually living for, to reevaluate where this is all actually going. Some of you are in it right now. And just listen, like clearly, there might not always be kind of like this understanding of why you have pain and suffering or the reason for your pain and suffering, but the Christian message is very clear about what the reason isn't. And that is that God doesn't care. It's not that. And in fact, the Christian message shows up and says, even in the worst type of loss and suffering and pain, that that has a shelf life, that that will expire, and that there will come a day where in a blinking of an eye, God himself will do something to turn back every wrong, every bit of pain that we've ever experienced, and in a moment, we will just have bliss. We will have joy that is so full. That all the pain we've, we've, we've been through, even if all 85 years that we get is just suffering and pain and loss, that in a moment, God will do and say this restoration, this new beginning will do away with all of that. That's what Jesus promises. Church, that radically changes us. And if it doesn't, it's because we haven't got it yet. The Christian message is crystal clear. That even when we don't know why we're going through what we're going through, that there is a shelf life. And we can endure almost anything if we know that there is an end. We know that there's hope. Tim Keller, who's walking through his own bit of pain and suffering right now, with a terrible diagnosis, wrote in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He wrote most of this book while he was sitting, going through chemo. says this, listen, Christianity teaches that contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contrary to karma, suffering is often unfair. But contrary to secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. I think he's right. If there's anything true about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's that God is not apathetic. He's not distant. He's not immune to our pain, but he enters into it. He bears it. He takes it on to himself to the point of death, only to raise back to life and tell death that it will not get the last word and to offer us a resurrected, true hope forever. So hear me. If life hasn't worked out the way you'd hoped, what the gospel comes along and says is that the good old days are not actually behind us, they're ahead of us. So whether your entire life has not worked out, it just hasn't panned out, you're just a little disappointed. Well, the last couple years has really revealed some stuff for you and really brought some stuff to the surface. We don't need to go back to the good old days. We don't have to make anything great again. Because Jesus is the future greatness that is going to come and restore and renew all things. And it's when we live in light of that, that we will be the most present, the most faithful, the most obedient here. So if you've lost someone to cancer, to COVID, if your marriage has started to dissolve, if you're lonely, if your body is racked with chronic pain, If you just can't seem to make progress with your mental and emotional health, Jesus is saying to you and to me, lift up your head. Fix your eyes on me. Wake up. Fix your eyes on my return. I'm coming back to finish what I started. Hold on. Hang on. 
It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. But it is as certain as the breath in your lungs that I will finish what I started. Amen? So, there is much more on offer than simply a future hope or some escapism. This is a present reality for us. An invitation to live life as we're meant to, fully reliant on God, the God that we were created for. So my plea today would be, don't wait, don't sleep, wake up and receive life. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, my plea today is that you would wake up. That the spirit of God would wake you up, revive you from the inside out, give you new life. That, that in, in a couple months we'll baptize you to, to, to demonstrate that you have given, been given new life. That you have put your old life to death in the watery grave and you have become new. And that today that that is on offer. And this may be the last time that we're offered it. This may be the last time that you hear it. As, as someone who is not yet following Jesus, that you can trust him. And if you are a follower of Jesus, wake up. Because the master will return. He will return for his servants. He will ask us what we're doing with what he left us with. Wasting time is not an option for those who are focused on the kingdom of God. So today, let's wake up. Not out of a, 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 a posture of guilt or shame or, or anger, but of, of love just glaring at us. Letting us know that we do not know how much time we have left. We do not know how many more times we're going to be able to share the gospel or pray for that family member or be present for those people in need. We don't know, but we have today. Let me pray for us to this end, and we will worship, and we will celebrate with communion this reality. God of heaven, there's so much we don't know, including the future and what the future holds. But we're so thankful that we can look at history and see that you are a God who has not just stood far off, but that you have entered in. That we can look back on your track record and see that there is not a receipt that you have not paid for. There is not a check that you have not cashed. There is not a promise that you have not made good on. And that's our hope. And I pray right now in this room and those who are joining us in the live stream, that right now, Spirit of God, you would convict us of what it is that you want to convict us of that you would empower us, that you would fill us, that you would give us new life, that we would be sent out of here or wherever we are, that we would just be the sweet fragrance and taste of the good news of the gospel wherever we find ourselves. Lord, and we're so thankful that we get to sing about your grace, that, that we just kind of fumble towards you, Lord. We don't, we don't have this figured out. We're not nailing everything, but we don't need to because you took that on the cross and nailed it to yourself. So as we sing, I pray that we would celebrate. As we confess, I pray that we would do it humbly. And as we pray, I pray that you would attune your ears to our prayers. That we would be able to be changed from the inside out. And that our communities, our families, our households, our workplaces, our schools, our city, and our nation would not be the same because of it. Because Jesus, you are coming back. We place our hope in you and ask that the power of your resurrection would be the fuel that we live on. We ask all these things in the only name that matters and ever will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.